This morning, Lord willing, as we continue our series of studies in the Gospel of John, we will conclude chapter 8. And chapter 8 is a um, crescendo of intensi- intensifying opposition, tension. And along with that, Jesus' claims becomes ultimate, uh, immensely important, radical claims. And I I want to uh, kind of use this as a prelude to our text, John chapter 8. My sermon text is verse 48 to 59. And it, it, it is a short passage packed with incredible radical truth. And should we say, radical truth claims of Jesus. And the truth claims that centers around two things. The one is about the death, and the other one is about Jesus' true identity related to the death. And Jesus basically saying, if you truly, truly believe me, not just with your words, but with your heart and action, trust and obey, keep my word, you will never see death. Anyone who claims to that must not be uh, one of us. That That kind of power belongs to not to human beings, but to God himself. And then, and then alongside of that, the fork of the road comes because of this issue. If Jesus is really who claimed to be about his identity, the radical truth claimed about himself, the first is also true. And we are to, to get that fork of the road and choice is ours. Decision is ours. How we believe, it's not a halfway thing any, anymore. And Jesus pushed us, the listeners, to that fork of the road. Have you thought about death? Well, death is very uncomfortable. When I, when I was younger, like probably most of you, I really thought that is far away to a point that, ah, I'm not going to die. So when you're a teenager, you think like that. You have a forever. So now I'm 50, uh, you know. <laughs> How long do I have? When I think about my friends having cancer, but today's society... Is very uncomfortable with that. So we euphemize it, beautify it in such a way that you don't really have to deal with the ugly finality of death. And for example, um, typically in funeral service, when I'm officiating, the, at the end of the day, uh, the more westernized you are, 
the more you stay away from the the seeing the dead being buried. So Rose Hills or you go to Forest Home or the conductor will say something like, this concludes at the end of the service. The, the casket is still there. And then you're about to lower. But as a sign of token of your love and saying goodbye, as a farewell to, to the deceased, you place a flower. And that became a typical tradition. But there's some, Christians or not, like to see everything. They will wait until the workers come and dig up, and they will go down and they put the, uh, you know, uh, use a shovel or with a hand and from the dust, and they will, it will go back to the dust kind of thing. Until they bring the machine to stump on the ground. And sometimes, to make it even real, there are people who are extremely sad and do not hesitate to express their bitter sadness, crying out loud. That's not Western thing to do. You have a nice uh, clothes, and then you don't show tears to public emotion is so almost a true shame. In the, during the funeral service, uh, I think it's a good thing to celebrate the life of the person who was deceased. But oftentimes what, what ends up happening, even among the Christians, the focus uh, focuses on the fact that this person had this kind of life. There's a joy and pictures and slideshows and funny stories about that person. All that to say is to minimize the finality of death. And if you are at the fork of the road today, as we are being forced to stand in front of the fork of the road, what's going to happen to that person? The Bible is really true. Those who belong to Christ will will dwell with Christ forever and eternity in heaven. Those who rejected Christ, and because of their not because of their own rejection only, but because without Christ, their sin is revealed and judged by the Almighty God. That eternal damnation is there. And to worsen it all, uh, men-centered theologians made liberal uh, statements like, they'll have a second chance when you, do, when you go to, when, you, when you're dead, you have a second chance to believe. No. Absolutely not. Bible is very clear. Jesus' finality, his word of finality, a warning about those who are living is once you're dead, you will stand before the judgment of sin. 
and uh, for the for the sake of kind of exposing myself to the worldly view, I googled WikiHow. How to overcome fear of death? <clears throat> Number one, it happens to everybody, not just to you. Number two, read some self-help books. Uh, Number three, focus on living. Does this really help? And I'm really thinking, even if I'm really non-Christian, this, this just doesn't help. So we, uh, as a believers in Christ, consider Word of God and Bible as not just the opinion, but the supreme authority of our faith, what we believe, and our con- conduct, how we believe. So let's consider, as a prelude to this passage, what Scripture says. There are several things that Scripture says about death, but I, I present four essential truths. Number one, truth number one is death is inevitable for every human being. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and thereafter there will be judgment. Truth number two, that is the result of sin. For the wage of sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, The wage, the consequence, the result of sin is death. There are three kinds of death. Number one, because of sin, physical death came into our world. If everything was went the way God designed, death wasn't necessary. But because of sin came in, physical death came in. Number two, death, the second kind of death that we're experiencing is Because of our sin nature, we are separated from God. This is spiritual death. So we need a new life. When you are born again, you are regenerated. New life has given to you. And you are a new creature in Christ as a believer in Christ. And you have a spiritual life. First death is physical death. Second death, spiritual death. The third death is eternal death. And Revelation calls it the second death, the lake of fire, the eternal separation from God. So, for example, uh, in, in our thoughts, as a Christian, God's kingdom and our salvation is, can be summarized in two phrases, already but not yet. Our salvation is already given. We are already saved. So the spiritual death has been taken away. So we are reconnected to God. We are alive in Christ. But until we physically die, the physical death has not gone away. In the future, the, the second death we will not face because of Christ, imputed Christ, the righteousness of Christ. 
So, it, which means, as we are living, only one death has been taken care of, presently, spiritual death, where spiritual life. But even the Christians, because of our fallen nature, stay with me. This is very important concept. Our physical death is the same as non-Christians. We will die. And the second death, will not, we will not face. The non-Christians, non-believers will face. But think about this. What about physical death then? The heaven, in some sense, the misconception is living without body only, but in eternal life, the eternity, in what Scripture is saying, is we will have new body, resurrected body. That's the resurrection of each believer. Then that physical death, bodily death, is taken care of. All three salvation will be consummated, completed at the end, in the future. Already, but not yet. Truth number three. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In light of what we said, the last enemy that Jesus has to destroy was death itself. But penalty of a wage of death, the sin is death, so somebody has to pay the death, destroy death by death, the kind of death is pure and righteousness of Jesus. And Jesus indeed destroyed the last enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 to 27, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And here's the good news now. Truth number four, the power of death was broken by Jesus' death and resurrection. Romans 6, verse 9 and 10, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Moreover, in 1 Timothy verse 110 says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, who destroyed death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That life and immortality to light so that we too no longer face death. The death will no longer have a dominion on Christ's followers as well. So as I said, today's passage, there's a lot of intense insults and accusations going on. In the midst of it all, Jesus brings out ultimate claim about his power and lordship over death. And there are four truth claims about himself. And as we uh, meditate on this passage, 
the story unfolds in such a way it connects, but our mental frame will be his truth, truth claim. The first truth, truth claim of Jesus is this. Jesus claims to be the son of the one who seeks Jesus' glory as the ultimate judge. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Verse 47, just verse before this, what Jesus concluded him, you are going to die in your sin. The reason why you are not really hearing me, believing in me, because you are not of God. So when, when the debate is not going well, we've seen that. And even, you know, the elections coming up and we see these debates. So instead of debating about issues, they attack the person. That's what's happening here. And they were calling Jesus, you are a Samaritan. Without a doubt, you're a Samaritan. This Samaritan was a half-breed, half-Jewish and half-Gentile. And they believed very strange things. They only believed the five first books of the Old Testament. The rest of them, they rejected, obviously because of the, their history. And so a lot of heretical beliefs were there. So Jews despised Oh, obviously, the Samaritans despise the Jews as well. But to call someone Samaritan is the ultimate insult. Maybe in our culture, even if you look very, very white or Asian, you're not even close to, to you know, black. They use the N-word. Or... Uh, even if you are not Japanese, the people will call you Jap, or, or we, we all experience that, or the word chink will come. And there is a connotation, the ultimate, in, just trying to jab at, at Jesus. On top of that, the cherry on pie is you're demon-possessed. You have a demon. Jesus does not argue against, against that, and he doesn't insult back, but what he does is reveal even more about himself, namely his relationship with the Father. This is redundant. Throughout chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, We've seen Jesus claims continually on the same issue. His relationship with Father, Father and I are one. I, have, uh, I teach nothing, I say nothing unless my Father says it to me. Um, 
And if you have seen the Father, you have seen me. That kind of thing. So let's think about when Jesus is saying, I do not seek my glory, but there's one who seeks it. Ultimately, your argument and your insult, my response really doesn't matter. The ultimate jersey at, at the end of the day, at the end of all the, the world comes down, the ultimate judge will be my father and you will be accounted by that judgment. And Jesus' confidence is not a self-made and man-created thing. It was in, deeply rooted in, in his father, his relation, oneness with God. In John 17, uh, as Jesus was spending the last day with his disciples, he lifts up his hand, hands and towards the heaven and he prays for his disciples, including us. Immediately first, the 12 disciples and the following disciples coming. The first thing that he prays, Father, it is now time. Glorify me in the same way that you and I share the glory together in your presence. The intensifying opposition and Jesus claims closer, closer to the ultimate claim of deity. Second claim is this. Jesus is the Lord of death who promises no death, i.e. eternal life, for those who keep which means trust and obey his word. The most radical uh, claim in this passage, there's a hint for that. The word truly, truly, verse 51, Jesus said, Amen, Amen. Verily, verily, most truthfully I say, the different English translations have that. But what, what does it say? And what does it mean to us? Everything Jesus says is truth. But if Jesus is saying, truly, truly, pay attention, this is utterly most important thing. What is it? If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said, said to him, now we know you have a demon. They're obviously really upset. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, you will never taste death. At least they're finally catching up. Jesus is claiming more than these. So this is, uh, in, in a way that, you know, when Jesus says something, even without verily, verily, or truly, truly, everything that Jesus is truth that comes from the Father. But when he says it, 
we need to pay attention. The fork of the road, I, I said in the beginning of this, this sermon, was nowadays in contemporary Christian world, thinks of it this as this kind of euphemism. You will have a good life. Maybe the death will be beautified. No, you will see, you will never see death. If you look at the Greek sentence, it's a double negative. You will not, never see death. So obviously, in, in, if we take this and paraphrase it, it will sound like this. If you trust and obey my word, and you become with me and one with me, you will never, never, never see death. Jesus promised no death. So let's start with this dwelling upon, meditating, chewing upon, upon this truth claim. If you are a true follower of Christ, as a true disciple, you will not die. I will not die. And this is supposed to be the, the, just the greatest news that makes us jump. For eternity, we will never see death. For those loved ones who passed away, the grief of saying goodbye, and you miss him every day, you miss her every day. But if that person belongs to Christ, he or she will never see death. And this is the reason why uh, in the beginning of my message I shared about three different kind of death. But we need to see in Jesus' word truly. Did he really mean this or did he just throw it out there? The first one comes to me is in John 11. John's not like a gospel of John is not like synoptic gospel. Three other gospels has the same view, same approach. Uh, biographical approach. John purposes that people, readers of his gospel, will know Jesus Christ and have eternal life. That's his purpose. So because of that, the truth claim, redundant truth claim about Jesus is continually repeated and the signs, that miracles that Jesus uh, performs, that at the end of the, that, this is raising the dead, his very close friend, Lazarus. Lazarus has a two, two sisters, Martha, older sister, and Mary, the younger sister. And they were anxious to, to see Jesus come before his, their brother, Lazarus, died. But Jesus was delayed because of many demands of the sick people and when, he's, when, he, when he finally came, Martha, if you have come early, my brother should, would not have to die. And verse 25 and John 11, Jesus said to her, to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
in the parenthesis, physically. Yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What Jesus is claiming is that even if you die, you will not die. Even if you experience physical death, the ultimate second death you will not have. That even the physical death, there will be resurrection, that I am the first fruit of the resurrection, that you will receive the new body, immortal body, the body doesn't decay for thousands and thousands of years. Incredible. And at the end he said, do you believe this? To Martha. But I think this, this question is to us, you and me as well. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? The ultimate victory is a victory over sin, death, and the devil himself. Three enemies, right? The uh, uh, First Corinthians 15, verse 54 to 57, Apostle Paul is talking about resurrection of the Christians, the coming resurrection. And he writes, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the body, and immortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting has been pulled by Jesus. There is no more sin, the penalty of sin, because he paid for it. There is no more power of sin under the law because his righteousness covers it. The question that comes to my mind is, even though when you face difficult sufferings, including very difficult times and diseases, incurable diseases like cancer, of course, there's so much difficulty. But as a Christian, this tells us, if we really believe, we don't have to fear of death. Number three claim of Jesus is Jesus is greater than Abraham. This will also intensify. But this is not just that, you know, when you are arguing with somebody, your friend, and your friends start, you know, yo mama joke on you, that kind of, Right? But this one is a, your father, not only your father, but their ultimate origin 
and the spiritual faith father, Abraham, their spiritual heritage comes from that. Verse 53, Are you greater than our father, Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. What did Abraham mean to the Jews? Not, not just these Jews in, that, in this context, but all throughout history, the Abraham was the origin of Hebrew, the Jewishness, and especially because of this father of faith, their spiritual heritage, the Abraham's offspring meant God's chosen, saved. And it, they, were, they were thinking of Abraham as their hero and their origin. And then basically, he also died. Are you saying really you are better than, greater than Abraham? Jesus is, yes, I am telling you. I, I, we would say like that, but Jesus put it in a very... Um, profound yet subtle way but you cannot get away from the clarity of this Jesus claim and Jesus surpassed the greatness his claim surpassed the greatness of father their father Abraham all the prophets and Jesus claimed to do God, what God only can do and and he said, I know him. I would be a liar if I'd say I don't know him. The whole thing hinges upon this question, isn't it? Is Jesus' claim about his identity really true? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus, finally, this time, Crystal explicitly clear. <clears throat> Before that, uh, let's look at Apostle Paul's testimony in Colossians 1 15 through 18. He describes the Jesus, how Jesus is greater than Abraham, and, or any, anything. Verse 15 He is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, first leader of all creation, not the firstborn, Jehovah's Witness saying, the first create. No, you cannot create something else when you are the creator, when you are created. Verse 16, by, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers 
or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. So we finally come to the fourth and last claim. Jesus is explicitly saying, I am God, the great I am. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. He's about 30 now. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Second, truly, truly here. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, grammatically incorrect here. Before Abraham was, I was. No, because there's a special meaning on I am. So they picked up the stones, picked up stones to throw at him, But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Verse 59 tells us they didn't need the explanation. Picking up stones is the punishment for the blasphemy. Murder, you know, a few other things were there. But the definite thing is blasphemy was execution by stones. They were trying to do that. He was claiming to God. It was so crystal clear to to the Jews. The radical claims Jesus has already repeatedly made. And even even chapter 8, I am the the light of the world. Uh, And the Greek word is uh, redundant thing about ego, amy. Ego, amy means I am, I am. Where does that come from? Exodus chapter 3 verse 4, when Moses was at the burning bush, why do I tell them about your, your name? I don't even know your name. God says, tell them I am who I am sent you. This is the absolute self-existent God, the, the Godness of God. And Jesus actually used that, ego Amy, in several times. In verse 24, 22, I'm sorry, 24 first, in chapter 8, I told you that you would not, you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Because of English translation to make it fluent, the translators call it, I am he. Actually, it should be like this. In Greek, unless you believe that I am, you will die. Verse 28 repeats again. So Jesus said to them, 
when you have lifted, lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Once again, there's no He. You know, English translator put it in. That you will know that I am, but speak as just the Father taught me. I'm sorry. I am He. And that I do not, I do nothing on my own authority. And this time on, Jesus using the word, I am. The choice is ours too. At this fork of the road, will we pick up the stone and throw at Jesus and shun him? Spit at him. Because he knew it was not lie, it was not truth. He's a liar, the devil from hell. If he didn't know it was not truth, he's a crazy man, lunatic. But the other choice, we bow down before him and call him my Lord and my God. And follow him with all our hearts. I think Charles Spurgeon and A.W. Tozer also too equates the British majesty in, in uh, the royal kingdom that they have queens and kings, but it's not a, the real power. They call, they call them as a majesty. Your, high, your Highness. But do they have any power in their ordinary life, even their political decision? No. The Christians can live like that too. I'm going to share, uh, in closing, just uh, maybe three passages, starting with the verse... Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. First resurrection refers to resurrection of the believers. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be the priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Second passage, Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in the flesh, in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong Slavery. Jesus delivered us. We don't have to fear death. And James chapter 4, verse 7 and 10. And if he is really truly God, second person of the Holy Trinity. James is urged to us, 
and 7, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I close with Spurgeon's quote. Charles Spurgeon, a century ago, says, Never fear dying, beloved. Dying is the last but the least matter that a Christian has to be anxious about. Fear living. That is a hard battle to fight, a stern discipline to endure, a rough voyage to undergo. So, brothers and sisters, as we live as true followers of Christ, let's fight the good fight of faith. Fight for joy in God. And never be wish-wash at the fork of the road. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for your word that is eye-opening, enlightening, illuminating to us. Jesus, thank you that you have paid the penalty of sin and paved the way for our eternal life that we will see, never see death. Holy Spirit, thank you for your promptings, your nudging in our hearts that we ought to to live as the sons and daughters of God who follows the desires of the Spirit and who submits to the authority of, authority of our God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And as the Crossway Church, we pray that may this promise and confidence become real in each one of us and as a corporate body. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.